And would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And singing those songs of praise, we want to give you praise. We want to give you glory. We want to sing of your joy. But God, right now we may feel helpless, angry, and sad with what is going on in our world. I know I do. So much war and violence and so many things that feel too big to fix, too big to deal with. But you are big enough and you are more than loving enough. Continue to hold the towns of Uvalde, Buffalo, and Tulsa in your hands as well as all the others that don't even make the news. Your word says that the spirit will intercede with groans when we do not know what to pray for. Well, I don't know what to pray, except your kingdom come where pain is gone and death will be no more. But there is joy amidst the sorrow and we live in the tension of this truth. This is also a season of graduation and new beginnings. So thank you for our youth that are moving up, whether from elementary to middle, middle to high school, high school to college, or graduating from college. Be with them as you have promised. Let them be a light in this world and help us all to choose you every day, to choose your path and your way. Amen. So we often hear about what the Lord has done for us, but as I read from Psalm 116, think about what we can offer the Lord our Savior. Psalm 116, 12 through 17. What can I offer the Lord for all he has done for me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. I will keep my promises to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The Lord cares deeply when his loved ones die. O Lord, I am your servant. Yes, I am your servant, born into your household. You have freed me from my chains. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. And now, Pastor Eugene. Thank you for that reading, Jamie. I always love that psalm, and whenever I go through it, I... Think of my son, William, at the dinner table. Once he's finished his cup of water, just saying, Mom, Dad, more water. <laughs> so can we ask that nicely, please? Mom, Dad, can I please have some water? It's like, of course you can, William. And it just makes me think of how he looks to us for that water. He depends on us for that water. And it's such a delight that even if he's shouting at us across the table, that he's not asking anybody else for that cup of water. It just makes me think about how we can depend on our Lord. And in an interesting way, that's the offering we bring. But that's not the sermon that I'm up here to preach. I'm sorry. <laughs> good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see all of you from this point of view again. Uh, for those of you who are new or perhaps returning from a semester away, let me just introduce myself briefly. My name is Eugene, and I'm one of the pastors here at PBCC. But for those of us who have been here um, all this time, you might be surprised to see me back in the pulpit so soon. Uh, I definitely feel like we only just started hearing from Sean and the Gospel of John again myself. 
And so if you're with me on that and you feel like the shifts in our preaching rotation can be a little bit disorienting sometimes, let me say that we hear you and we understand. Um, but I also want to point out something that I, that I be- believe would, we would not be able to see as clearly without the way that our rotation operates. And that is that God really is in charge of our teaching at PBCC. God is in control of what gets taught, when, and by whom. And we, we call it our preaching rotation, but it's really God's curriculum. He sovereignly shapes and directs it months and years, even, even eternities in advance, so that we are hearing what we need to be hearing when we hear it. No matter who the preacher is standing at this pulpit, their message fits into the flow of God's work as the ultimate teacher of PBCC, the ultimate pastor of PBCC. Take, for example, the last message that we heard from Sean. In John 14, 6, Jesus declared himself to be the way and the truth and the life, explaining that no one comes to the Father except through him. This was the last scheduled sermon uh, that Sean delivered. And though Sean had intended to follow up with another sermon last Sunday, we felt led instead to prepare a lament service to give us the space and the time to just begin processing the violence that has engulfed our nation. So the last word, the last scheduled word from Sean and John concerned the way of Jesus, the Jesus way. And he asked us to think on what it means to follow the way of Jesus in the hope of finally arriving at the many-roomed house of the Father. And there really is no better hope for us to set our minds on during these times. During these times when violence seems to lurk behind every corner and in every shadow, when anxiety, grief, shock, and despair, when these emotions have become our baseline emotions, when it can be a scary thing to simply get out of bed, to look at your phone, to face the day and its news, during these times, what better hope is there to hold on to than the hope that one day we'll be reunited with God in his eternal kingdom, where there will be no more tears, and no more pain, and no more sorrow, and no more violence, and no more death. There's no greater hope. But how do we get there? This was the question posed by the disciples in John 14, and it lingers in our hearts even today. Jesus said, I am the way, but how do we follow that way? Well, to help us go deeper with this question, God has brought us back to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. The passages that we'll be covering today and for the next five Sundays take us deeper into the way of Jesus, especially in contrast to the other ways this world offers us to take instead of Jesus' way. We on the pastoral staff really could not have planned this out better. This is God's doing, and I hope, I hope that that comes to you, brothers and sisters, as an encouragement, that God is behind what we hear each week. I hope you feel shepherded. I hope you feel pastored, not by me or by anyone else, but by God himself. I hope you feel him pastoring you in the way of Jesus. And this is, as I mentioned a moment ago, what we will be talking about in one way or another over the next several weeks. When Christ spoke of being the way in John 14, 6, he was drawing on a long history of how that word had been used by the people of God. 
The Greek and Hebrew words for way are hadas and derek, and both words refer to the literal way to get to a place. They can be translated as road or path just as easily. However you translate them into English, both words imply at least three things. First, a starting point. Second, an end point. And third, a distance between the two which must be traversed. Way, road, path, these words suggest a journey, a sojourn that takes time and effort and commitment. This was clear to the first disciples of Christ. In order to follow Christ, they had to literally walk in his footsteps down the same roads and paths that he walked on through the same towns and villages until he arrived at the cross. So there was a sense of progress. There was a a sense of movement to following Christ. And there was an awareness of the dangers that they might encounter along the way a vigilance against temptations to stop following Christ and to go a different way instead. When Christ called himself the way, he was pointing to these implications, to this sensibility, the sensibility of the sojourner. Following Christ, like any journey, takes time and effort and intentionality. Now, brothers and sisters, is this sensibility present in our Christianity today? Do we get the sense that the way of Jesus implies a distance that must be traversed throughout our lifetimes? Do we get the sense that we must live our faith in Christ over the course of not one, but many decisions, many choices, many steps taken, one foot in front of the other until we reach our destination? And do we sense any danger along the way, the threat of losing our way as we follow Christ? Or... Or has Christianity become reduced to making one decision for Christ, reciting one prayer to him? When it comes to salvation, have we learned to set it and forget it, to quote a late night infomercial? Is that how commoditized our Christianity has become? Or put another way, do we have a place in our Christianity for the word if? Let's unpack these thoughts as we look at our passage for this morning, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. So it's been a while since we were in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians together, so let me just briefly remind you of who Paul was, who the Colossians were, and how the Colossians situation brought about the writing of this letter. Paul was once named Saul, and under that name he had risen through the ranks of a dominant Jewish sect called the Pharisees. And as a Pharisee, Saul was famous not only for his devotion to Judaism, but also for his zeal in persecuting Christians. But one day, while on the road to Damascus, Christ appeared to Saul in his resurrection glory and claimed Saul for himself. Christ renamed Saul Paul and commissioned him as an apostle, a representative tasked with expanding the reach of the gospel. As an apostle, Paul worked with many other church planters, including a man named Epaphras. Epaphras had started a church in Colossae, a city in southwest Asia Minor, whose economic opportunities had drawn people from all over the Roman Empire. By Paul and Epaphras' day, the city had become home to a diverse population representing a variety of cultures, languages, social classes, ambitions, hopes, philosophies, and religions. And so in this way, ancient Colossae was similar to the modern Bay Area. 
So perhaps it's easy for us to understand why Epaphras grew concerned over the health of the Colossian church. He was concerned enough to reach out to Paul and to ask for support pastoring the Colossian believers, and that support took the form of this letter. And at the heart of this letter was a poem, a hymn that Paul quoted in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let me read this for us. It says, He is, Christ is, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This hymn is at the center of gravity for the whole letter, the foundation of all the encouragement Paul wanted to give to the Colossians. Amid the cacophony of Colossae's cultural milieu, the Colossians needed to remember who Christ is. And they needed to remember what Christ alone was capable of doing for them. And this hymn addressed those needs by reminding the Colossians first that Christ is the Lord of all because he created all things. And second, Christ became the head of the church because he used his power and glory to reconcile sinful humans to God. Christ, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, made peace by the blood of his cross between God and humankind, reconciling the two and restoring their relationship. And this reconciliation is not limited to sinful humankind, but will ultimately include all creation in the age to come. The reconciliation Christ purchased for sinful humankind, this is the main topic of the next section of Colossians, starting in verses 21 to 22, which is the first half of our passage this morning. It says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now these verses repeat what was said in the hymn, but they also expand on it in important ways. Previously, Paul had only implied the Colossians' prior need to be reconciled with God. But in verse 21, this need was made explicit. You, he says, were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. In other words, the Colossians' relationship with God had been thoroughly broken. Their sin had driven a wedge between them and God because God in his holiness could not abide their unforgiven sinfulness. But this separation was not just one-sided. The Colossians were also hostile in mind to God, opposed to him, and content to live their lives doing evil deeds. And brothers and sisters, it was these hostile Colossians, these evildoers, these strangers and foreigners to God and his promise that Christ reconciled to God. How? By offering a sacrifice to atone for their sins. And what was the sacrifice he offered? It was his body of flesh, his human body offered by his death on the cross. 
Like a high priest of the old covenant, Christ offered a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of sinful people in order to cleanse them of their sins so that they could enjoy relationship with God. But unlike the high priests of the old covenant, Christ's offering was not an animal, but it was himself. His own body, his own life, pure and spotless and without blemish. He sacrificed himself on the cross and his death opened the way to relationship with God. As the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And that was Christ's purpose and coming into the world. To reconcile the Colossians to God, and not only the Colossians, but any and all who would put their faith in him. The purpose of Christ was to reconcile sinners, strangers, foreigners, evildoers, to reconcile people like you and like me with God. As Paul put it at the end of verse 22, Christ gave his life for us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him, that is, before God the Father. This is priestly language taken directly from the Old Testament. Christ, as the great high priest, cleansed us of our sin in order to present us as a holy offering. He forgave us of our guilt in order to present us as a blameless offering. He resolved our debt to God in order to present us as an offering above reproach. This was Christ's purpose all along, to present us to God as people forever beloved by him. Amen? So when will this presentation take place? When will Christ's purpose be accomplished? Well, in one sense, it already has been. We already have access to God in Christ through the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts. By his Spirit, we know that when he sees us, he sees us as his restored friends. He sees us as his forgiven people, as his betrothed wife. The key word, betrothed. Just as the fullness of marriage remains out of reach of the merely betrothed, the merely engaged, so the fullness of relationship with God remains outside of our experience this side of the second coming. We are seen and we are known by God and we see and know him, but only in part do we see and know him. Our presentation to God Our joining with him in eternal worship in the heavenly temple not made by human hands, this has not yet happened, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) There remains a distance between our future presentation to God in our lives in the present. A sojourn that we can measure in days and weeks and months, years, yes, even lifetimes. Paul reminded the Colossians of this already but not yet reality of the sojourn in verse 23. Picking up in 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting 
from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If indeed you continue in the faith. Let's just pause and let that phrase settle in a bit. There are very few words in the English language that cause more discomfort and distress and even defensiveness in the hearts of churchgoers than the word if, especially when talking about the love of God and the salvation of his people. As far as many churchgoers are concerned, the word if should simply be stricken from church vocabulary, especially when talking about reconciliation and salvation. Why is that? Well, it's because the word if implies a condition. And what is the most common adjective we tend to apply to the love of God? Unconditional. God's love is unconditional. And isn't that the truth? Isn't salvation by grace alone? Not based on anything we can do or say or think on our own strength, out of our own capacity to be good and righteous and deserving of salvation? Isn't it true that God's love is unconditional? And of course, yes, it is true. It's true that God's love is unconditional in the sense that his love for us was not prompted by anything we bring to the table. God does not love his people because of their earned merit, because of their proven worthiness, because of their bedazzling personal distinctives. His offer to forgive our sins in Christ and to indwell us by his spirit, this offer comes to us unconditionally, prompted by, unprompted by anything but his own grace, his own delight to so offer. Yet in the mystery between God's ultimate reality and our creaturely existence, in the mystery between his transcendent sovereignty and our embeddedness in this space and time, we experience God's unconditional love as an offer that we must choose for ourselves. It comes to us through the gospel of Christ, and we must decide whether to lay hold of it or not. And not only must we decide, but we must continue to decide, to continue making choices, choices that reflect our belief, choices that when strung together become behaviors and lifestyles, steps taken in a lifelong sojourn, choices that over time become recognizable as, to use Eugene Peterson's phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. God's love and salvation come to us unconditionally, but our experience of his love and salvation require our engagement. We must say yes, and not just at an altar, not just at the altar call, but in our day-to-day lives, not just to the gospel pitch, but to gospel obedience over the course of his, this sojourn called life. Now, this is difficult to wrap our minds around, and so when I was in college, my pastor illustrated this for me with an imaginary trip to Hawaii. Keyword imaginary, unfortunately. Imagine, brothers and sisters, with me, that you are on a flight to Hawaii. Imagine these are normal times, and neither COVID-19 nor monkeypox is threatening your vacationing plans. In fact, let's imagine, because we're imagining, let's go ahead and imagine that absolutely everything has been taken care of for you. The cost of the flights and the rooms at the resort, everything has been paid for, even the Uber to the airport. 
And imagine that when it came time to board the airplane, you learned that the airplane itself is in perfect working order, that the make and model has the best safety track record in all the aviation world. And the pilots? Well, as you boarded the plane, you were greeted by the greatest pilot duo to ever pull yoke to sky. Absolutely everything has been provided for you free of charge, free to you, offered to you unconditionally. So there you are on your flight to Hawaii, sitting comfortably at cruising altitude, and as you're swiping through the in-flight entertainment options, you, you learn that the flight should take about five hours and 30 minutes. Now, brothers and sisters, what is required of you to make it to Hawaii? What must you do to arrive in Honolulu? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? You have to stay in your seat. You have to stay on board. You have to continue on the flight. Now, if you decide to get up from your seat and approach the emergency door and fling it open and then jump out the airplane, chances are you will not make it to Hawaii. If you deboard the plane mid-flight, you will encounter serious difficulty arriving in Honolulu. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, you do have, after all, the greatest pilots who ever lived, and so who knows what sorts of maverick-style maneuvers they can pull off mid-air. But one thing is for certain. If you had just stayed in the plane, you would have arrived at your final destination. Now, you might encounter, of course, some turbulence along the way. The plane, through no, through no fault of its own, will at times shake and shudder and pitch and roll, and you might be tempted to reach for that emergency door. You might even sit in front of it. You might stare at it, read everything about it, run your fingers across the handle. But if you continue trusting the plane and the pilots, you will make it to the end. You will land, and when you stand finally on the beach and feel the warmth of the sand underfoot and see the impossibly blue water stretching out to the horizon in front of you, you won't even remember the flight. You see, brothers and sisters, your continuance aboard the flight is a necessary condition of your arrival. It is not what makes your arrival happen, of course. Sitting in your seat does not fly the plane. Sitting in your seat does not hold the plane together. Sitting in your seat does not pay for the tickets that got you on board in the first place. You have not earned a trip to Hawaii by sitting for five and a half hours. No, sitting in your seat is not a sufficient, causative condition. It is a necessary one, though. In a similar way, there is a necessary condition to making it through this journey to reunion with God, and that is to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul's message to the Colossians was simple. If you continue trusting his gospel, Christ will accomplish his purpose in you. If you continue trusting his word, Christ will reunite you with God. He will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul wasn't asking the Colossians to earn God's love or their salvation. Paul wasn't making it all about works. Paul wasn't denying the unconditional offer of the gospel. He was simply urging the Colossians as humans bound to this 
space and time that they continue in the gospel of Christ to the end of their sojourn, to manifest their chosenness through their choices. So it was a simple message, but it was one that the Colossians desperately needed to hear because remember, the city of Colossae was, was a buffet of perspectives, ideologies, philosophies, and religions. And it turns out that the Colossian believers had been in dialogue with some of those belief systems. And there's nothing wrong with dialogue between Christian and non-Christian perspectives. As Sean likes to remind us, all truth is God's truth. In fact, dialogue should be encouraged. Listening and learning, these are things that we should encourage and engage in ourselves. Dialogue is good, but deception is not. And Epaphras was concerned that the Colossians were being deceived, that faith in Christ was insufficient for bringing people to God and into his salvation. It was this concern that led Epaphras to request Paul's help. You see, for Paul and Epaphras, leaving the gospel of Christ would be like a person on that flight to Hawaii deciding to jump off the plane in the hope of landing on another plane because they had heard that the other one could get them to Honolulu faster. That this is a stunt not even Tom Cruise would be willing to perform. <laughs> Hence Paul's exhortation, though perhaps he's performed it in some sense. Anyway, Christ has done all that is necessary for you to be reconciled to God. He has paid the price of atonement. He has taken the punishment for your sins. He has entered into the holy place to mediate on your behalf. And his purpose, his goal, is to lead you through this life and into the Father's house, the holy temple of heaven, and present you to God to be his beloved people. So devoted is he to accomplishing his purpose that he was willing to die on the cross to make it happen. So do not be deceived, Colossians, Paul said. Do not shift from the hope of the gospel of Christ, but continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Even when the winds blow and the storms rage and the world outside is pitching and rolling and shuddering and shaking when it becomes unrecognizable, do not lose your resolve, but hold on, stay on board, continue with Christ. Now, the Colossian believers weren't the only congregation that needed to hear this message in Paul's time. Paul exhorted the Christians in Corinth in much the same way. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And Paul wasn't the only writer in the New Testament exhorting his churches in this way. The author of Hebrews, whom I take to not be Paul, you can ask Bernard about that, wrote this to the church. Hebrews 3, 13 to 14, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Did you notice those ifs, brothers and sisters? They stand out so clearly to me now, and they stand out to me because of how I have been shaped by the culture around me, around us. We live in a culture that for all its diversity and plurality does not know how to embrace process. 
We live in an instant gratification culture, an instant success, an overnight success-driven culture that wants things now, that wants change now, that wants answers now, satisfaction now. Tomorrow is simply too late, even for emails, even for package deliveries. Internet technologies have accelerated and intensified our addiction to immediacy, but the vulnerability to it was always there. It's in our nature to crave what instant gratification and immediacy supplies, and that is control and certainty, or the illusion thereof. In our pursuit of control and certainty, we try and eliminate ambiguity and tension because ambiguity and tension are frightening, they're scary, and they suggest that things might not go the way that we want them to go. But brothers and sisters, ambiguity and tension are only frightening if we believe that they will never end. If ambiguity and tension are all we have without any hope of resolution, without any hope of arriving at a place of rest, then that is a hopeless life. And if anxiety and tension are all the gospel of Christ offers us, then that is a hopeless gospel. And we have every reason to reject it, to abandon the way of Jesus. If Christianity is never anything more than already but not yet, then, then we've chosen badly, brothers and sisters. But brothers and sisters, there is a resolution coming. Already but not yet will one day become finally complete, finally finished, not just inaugurated but fully consummated, this is the purpose of Christ, to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before God for whom we were created and with whom we will live forever. This is our destination, brothers and sisters. This is our finish, our end point to which Christ is the way. And so we can embrace process, brothers and sisters. We can live in this temporary tension. More than that, we must embrace this tension. We must embrace the truth that Christ's purpose in our lives is accomplished only on the other side of the wilderness, only at the end of the sojourn, only after a long obedience in the same direction. If we do not embrace this tension, if we choose instead to settle into our religion, content to stay where we are, confident that we know enough and understand enough and do enough that we've had all the right boxes checked, that, we, that we're really okay, if we reduce Christianity from a sojourn to a system, then we will have become Pharisees ourselves. No, brothers and sisters. Let us instead embrace the possibilities, the journey, however frightening it might seem initially, implied by the word if. If we continue in Christ, we'll make it home. If we do not continue in Christ, we will not make it home. Now these possibilities are too big for anyone to reckon with on their own. We need to do this together. As the author of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 1, 23 to 25, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need one another to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. We need one another to ensure that we do not shift from the hope of the gospel that we heard. We need the community of God's people, both local and global, both immediate in the present, but also trans-historical. We need the wisdom and experience of those who have followed Christ in other cultures and in different times to help us along the way. Thankfully, we already have the apostles to stand on. The capital A apostles of the New Testament, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they supplied us with all the truth that we need to walk the way of Christ. It is to this truth that our passage points in its closing words, verse 23. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Next Sunday, God willing, we will take a closer look at the Apostle Paul himself. But our help in continuing in the faith is not limited to our fellow sojourning Christians or even the apostles appointed by Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the counselor. We have the paraclete. We have the spirit of Christ living within our hearts, encouraging and empowering us to persevere. The spirit reminds us of what Christ has done to reconcile us to God. The spirit reminds us of Christ's promise to lead us all the way home like a pilot on the intercom in the middle of the storm, voice calm with experience and skill. The spirit assures us of God's love and salvation. So please remain in your seats, belts fastened low across your waist. He helps us hold on, just as he helped us get on board to begin with. So brothers and sisters, how are we continuing in the gospel of Christ? Is there an area of our lives where Christ is asking, has been asking us to choose him? to choose his way, to choose his love and salvation over whatever else is on offer in this world? Or have we become complacent in our continuance in the gospel of Christ? Have we grown lackadaisical in our attitude towards God? Have we allowed the gravity of comfort, of worldliness, of the often quite good goals that we set for ourselves? Have we allowed the gravity of these things to slow us down or even to draw us away from following Christ? Or have we reduced our continuance in the gospel to the observance of rituals, to the mere study of books, to the rote singing of songs, to consistent but heartless participation in the culture of Christianity rather than in Christ himself? And I ask these questions not because I'm assuming anything, but simply because we need to ask. We need to ask. Perhaps, though, after asking these questions and thinking about them, perhaps, perhaps we are persevering. Perhaps that's the answer we come up to in honesty and humility. We are holding on. We are continuing actively in Christ. And perhaps what we need is just simply the reminder that he sees and he knows and he is working too within us by his spirit and around us through his people going before us and securing for us the salvation we are choosing by his grace.
If that is you, then be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be reminded that Christ can and will accomplish his purpose of presenting us to the Father as his accepted and beloved people. In his house are many rooms. Christ will take us there, so don't give up. And don't hesitate to ask the Spirit for the encouragement and empowerment that you need to continue in Christ. Brothers and sisters, today is Pentecost Sunday, in case you didn't know. What better day than to perhaps get into the habit of asking for the Spirit to continue His work in our hearts, to bring us into greater alignment with what He is already doing within us in mystery. Wherever you find yourself this morning, wherever whether you're chastened or encouraged, may we become a more authentic and intentional and honest community, increasingly so. May we become a people increasingly familiar with process, accustomed to tension, people who embrace the journey and all those persevering with us. The world needs authentic, intentional, and honest people more than ever, so may we be what this world needs, and may we know that God is here with us, in love and grace to receive us in our prayers. Let's bring prayers to him now, wherever we may be or find ourselves. I'd like to invite Stephen and the team back to the stage to provide us with some space to pray to God, to ask of him more of his spirit, to ask of him help as in persevering to ask of him encouragement and perspective to carry us through not just this week, but a life to come. And now receive this benediction. May God, who dwells within you by the Holy Spirit, empower you day by day to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May this be true as we go from this place and into the world.